I just want to start off. Uh, please let me know if you're having any trouble with audio or anything like that. I just want to start off. Um, I want to correct, or I'm not sure if correct is, we'll, we'll call it correct because I don't really recall offhand what I said um, at the very end of the last class, but it seemed to me that I didn't say it quite correctly. Um, so the last Gemara that we learned on Dahil Chesim base was just a quick quote of the respective opinions of Meshama and Bethil um, in terms of the limits you know, under what circumstances one can give a non-Jew his, ab- his object to carry, um, thus creating the impression that he's having the non-Jew carrying for him, right? So he, uh, if you sell something or lend something or rent something to him, and then he walks out and it has, it says, a big bar of Bernstein on the side, so everyone knows it's yours. And then there's the non-Jew prancing around on Shabbos with my item. So what am I supposed to do about that? So Bishamai says you shouldn't do it um, unless he has time to get all the way back to his own home, to the the Nahu, the Nanju. Rabbi Yisi says that you have until he gets to the house closest to the wall. And then we had Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva says he just needs to have enough time to get out of my house. And like Mark just pointed out, Rabbi Kiva is hein hein de Rabbi Kiva hein de Rabbi Shammai. What that means is, Bishamai and Rabbi Kiva, excuse me, Bishil. Rabbi Kiva is coming to say that the version of Bishilal, which said that the house, that the goal uh, zone is the house closest to the to the wall, is incorrect. That that opinion is incorrect, and the reality is what he says. That the the non-Jew merely has to have enough time to get out of my house. It's a very funny way of saying that. Hain, hain. He's saying, these are the words of Aesel. He's saying, so Bikiva is saying, I am telling you the words of Aesel. Okay. Um, okay. Tan Rabbanon, we're three, two and a half lines from the end of Yitches. Tan Rabbanon. Meshame emrim loyim kradim chemtsoi lenachri. A person selling his chametz. Why is he doing that? Not because of the reason we sell our chametz. It's chametz because he wants to get rid of his chametz and he uh, has a bakery. And so he shouldn't do that. If I sell a box of donuts to non-Jew, I have to know that he's going to finish all the donuts before Pesach. Okay. That's Rishan's opinion. I can continue selling chametz to non-Jews all the way up until the Shas or Isser, all the way up until Erev Pesach. Halfway through Erev Pesach. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda says, Kutach habavli. What's Kutach habavli? So that's, this is the famous Kutach of the Talmud. The strange fermented dairy dip. They call it a dip, it's not really properly translated as dip. I one time did a bit of a deep dive into the Gemara and its dairy products. It's more like a, a topping. Uh, I mean, it's like a yogurt sort of thing, really. It's not. It's more than just a dip. But um, it has pieces of bread in it, which are used, crumbs, which are used to, um, to hasten the fermentation process, uh, and therefore it's full of bread, it's full of chametz. So, says Yehuda, 
kutach avadli b'chol minei kutach asher limkor lamigem kaitam b'pesach. You're not allowed to sell a big uh, tub of kutach to a non-Jum um, even 30 days before Pesach. Why? Because ultimately the non-Jew is not going to finish. Kutach is something that's eaten slowly. And the non-Jew is not going to finish the kutach in time for Pesach. And still, again, you're going to have that same problem that's going to look like the non-Jew has some chametz of mine, which already seems very attenuated. Okay. Okay, forget moving on from Pesach. Say I put some, uh, I put uh, some food out for a dog in in my courtyard, and the dog comes along. And instead of sitting nicely and eating the food in the courtyard, he walks away. He grabs the food and walks away. Okay, so maybe you should say well, it's a problem because the guy's mar- the dog is marching around with my food hanging out of his mouth and it looks very bad. It looks like I gave him something to carry around that shops. Says the Gemara, no, no, that's not a problem. You don't have to worry about it. Ain't this cocking like you don't have to go chase after him. Say, hey, put that down. Same, by the same token, if I put the food down in front of an Anjou, and he decides, you know what, I'm not sitting in the courtyard to eat, I'm going to go walk in the street with my food. It's not my problem, that's his choice, he's allowed to make that choice. Says the Gemara, why do I need to add on the case of the Nachri, of the Najew, when the case of the dog tells me everything I need to know? I am not responsible for what other beings, at the whatever level of sentience, do with things that I hand them in all good faith inside my Rishos, inside my Chatzar. Says the Gemara. I'll explain. Right, Hasul Amali Hainuach isn't the same exact halacha. Says the Gemara. Ma'od Tema Hay Rami Alei Bahay Le Rami Alei Kamash Malan. So the Rajba and others explain. Hay Rami Le Bahay Le Rami Alei. The 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 dog is my responsibility in terms. I have I have to feed the dog, right? Assuming it's my dog, you have to feed your animals. First thing you have to do every morning before you yourself eat is feed your animals, right? So, so uh, the obligation, it could be, the Gemara says, you might think that the obligation to feed your animals is what's superseding, is what's, is what's permitting this leniency over here, really. I mean, the Rabbanon, we should forbid it because of the way it looks. But we're going to be lenient because it is your responsibility to feed your dog. And how else are you supposed to feed your dog if you have to guard your dog the whole time, worrying about maybe he's going to leave. But when it comes to the non-Jew, you have to say, hey, buddy, you better not leave the Chatzah. Um, Kamash Malan says the Gemara, no, you don't have to worry at all. You cannot be considered responsible for the person or being or dog you are feeding, leaving your chatzah. Seems fair. Okay. Tanarabon. Um, ask your other Caleb will not be Um... Excuse me. A person should not rent his vessels to a non-Jew on Arab Shabbos. But if he's doing it simply in the second half of the week, right, Wednesday or Thursday, then that's permissible. Similarly, 
we don't. These are very pertinent Gemaras. These are Gemaras that come up all the time. Or, they, I mean, only until very recently they were really hot topics, and now they're just still an interesting topic to be aware of. Um, right? We don't send letters by the hand of non-Jewish uh, um, couriers on Arab Shabbos. The doubt of a hey mother, however, on Wednesday or Thursday, it is permissible. So there's a lot of discussion as to why exactly that is, but on the face of it, the assumption is that uh, people are going to see the letter. There are two, if I recall, there are two ideas which the Mafar should talk about. One is that the non-Jews, the Gemara even said, and later on, that the that the uh, the non-Jew is going to tell everyone. He's going to be announcing, "Oh, I have the the Jew's letter." Um, another idea is that you're going to be writing in the Jewish ksav, in the Jewish using the Jewish alphabet, and so even if he doesn't tell everyone, everyone's going to realize that he's carrying a Jew's letter. Um, if I recall correctly, those are two possible explanations of why this is such an issue. But anyway, right? So you can't send your letter with it. So. But as long as you send it Wednesday or Thursday, um, it is fine. Kayotzeboy, it seems to not make a difference, right? How far he has to go. The point is, how far away from Shabbos was it when I gave it to him? Um, okay. These are two Rabbiyasis who I don't think we know at all. I don't think either of those is our familiar Rabbiyasi. Um, he was so particular about this issue of people uh, seeing, oh, look, it's, it's Rav Yossi's letter um, in the hand of the non-Jew on Shabbos, so he never ever let a non-Jew hold anything that had his handwriting on it. He was afraid that people would get the impression that he sent something uh, to be carried by a non-Jew on Shabbos. Okay? Says the Gemara, Tan Rabbanon in Mishalchen Igeres Bi'anachri Erev Shabbos Alamkin Kaitus Leidamo. Here's another trick. The only way you can send a letter by the hand of a non-Jew on Erev Shabbos is if you set a price beforehand. You say you're going to carry this letter for uh, you know to city number two, and I'm going to pay you for that task eight hundred dollars. So once you do that, that changes the dynamic. That makes him acting in the furtherance of his own interests. Right, right, the, right Rashi says, the way Rashi says, tarak. he's working for himself now. So that shifts the dynamic, that makes it a new sort of thing. Right? And, uh, and Basil says, that's Basil's, uh, seems to be Basil's uh, idea here. Basil says, no, no, it doesn't make a difference, you can be kites all day. It doesn't make a difference. It's not any different from selling, it's not any different from renting. Of course, these are all legal structures which should really work to uh, to render things to render, to say that, uh, in fact, he, you are, that, that, that the non-Jew is working for himself. Nonetheless, we still don't prove it. Okay. Um, very well. Now, Bishamay Oimrim, Kedeshi says you have until you get to your house. Kedeshi you have you have as much time as it would take to take the non to take for the non Jew to get to his house. 
And Basil says, um, until he gets to the house closest to the wall. The wall of the city. Says the Gemara, what are you talking about? I can't, I can't stick together the beginning of the rice and the end. In the beginning of the rice, we were just saying that it's permissible if you're kaitzit, if you if you set a price beforehand. And now we're saying that there are all these preconditions. Who cares? It doesn't make sense to 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 uh, to enforce preconditions if kaitzit solves all our problems. If setting a price beforehand solves all our problems, says the Gemara. And if you don't set a price, now we can have a conversation. The Hanoim are now telling us the way to avoid this problem is by leaving if you if you don't have the four uh, if you don't think ahead, right? If you don't exercise the forethought of being kaitzit of setting a price, which really is the ideal way to solve the problem. So then you have to make sure, Taka, you have to make sure that you're done, that the, that the non is going to be done, at least can be done carrying your letter in a relatively small amount of time. Otherwise, it's going to be forbidden. Okay. So says the Gemara, that's very nice. That's very nice. However, however, says the Gemara, Yoha'amrit reisha in mishalchin. Right, we just said, Ein if you look back at the first line of the Bryce we just quoted, we said, The implication is that there's no wiggle room. The implication is that either you can, the only thing that really works is to be kaitzitz, is to set a price beforehand. It sounds like either you set a price and you can, or you don't set a price and you can't. It doesn't sound like there are these uh, levels of loopholes. Um, now again, you have to wonder what the Gemara think. I mean, there's got to be a certain point that I'm allowed to send the letter in the hand of the non-Jew. But maybe they thought like Rabbi Yosi Hachasid, Rabbi Yosi Hachasid, who's Xavier. Maybe that's they, that's the Havmina. Maybe the Havmina is like Rabbi Yosi Hachasid says that you should never ever let a non-Jew be seen holding your letter, because uh, or you should never ever give a letter to a non-Jew because you might end up being seen on Shabbos. Says the Gemara, Kasha. Now the words beidoar um, look very familiar, and people get very excited when they see them. Um, however, to the rest of my knowledge, beidoar does not refer to anything that would sound familiar to us. Well, it's it is the prodome, it is the the earliest form, I suppose, of male as we know it. Um, the, the doar, is, Rashi says, is somebody who is responsible for, um, Rashi says actually, it's, the, it's like the local uh, chieftain or whatever, the local feudal leader. Um, others explain a little more, I don't think Rashi disagrees, that this is the place, this is the, there's one central house to, who's, to whom the, all the letters go. In other words, the, you don't, people don't spend days and days walking through the streets trying to find uh, the recipient of each letter. Rather, you go to the home of the person called the Beidoar, the home of the Doar, you give him the letter, and then everyone comes to the letter guy and gets their mail. So, yeah, so that's going to be a potential distinction. And the Rashi, Rashi may have had a bit of a different girsa than we do in this Gemara, but I think that his general approach works uh, nonetheless, um, um, that even without kitsitza, even without a um, even without a uh, a set price, right? 
even without a set price, there is still hope if there is a postman, if there is a central location for the letters. But if there's no central location for the letters, which would mean that necessarily the non-Jew has to uh, has to wander through the city trying to find you, um, then that's going to be an issue. And the only way for that to be permissible would be Katitsa would be setting a price beforehand. It's worth noting, Rashi just points out that we, ha- we still have to explain what the dis- disagreement of um, Beit Shammai and Beit Hill is, if the male is going to a Beit Doar anyway. Um, but uh, essentially, Beit Shammai is going to still end up saying he's going to, uh, that, that, that the Beit Shammai is still going to end up saying that the, the non-Jew has to have time to be able to get to a particular house happens to be now that the particular house is that of a postman. And Hill is still going to say the same cooler, the base Hill is still going to say the same relatively lenient approach, which is that the male has to have time to get to the outermost house of the city. Okay. Um, Tanarabon. Ein mafligen besfina paches gigimuliyam kremlu shavas. You shouldn't get onto a boat. Before less than three days before Shabbos, right? Because most places you're going in a boat, you're going to end up having to travel on Shabbos. This is only true for your own stuff. However, the minute you're doing a dvar mitzvah, the minute what you're busy with is a mitzvah, then it's already permissible. Okay, Shaper dummy. So how should you handle that situation once you're doing it? You should make a deal. Right when you when you set your terms with the boat captain, you should say, "I'm making, I'm arranging in advance that you will stop on Shabbos." And you don't have to worry. What is the manuscript? You don't have to worry whether or not he actually does so. You just have to uphold your end of the deal by doing your best to make sure the non-Jew will stop on Shabbos. If he doesn't listen, it's not your problem. Divrei Reb. Shmuel says you don't even have to bother with that. And says the says the and from Sur to Tzidain, which are two Phoenician cities, right? Even if it's Mamish Friday, you can jump on a little shuttle boat from Tzur to Tzidain because it's such a short ride that there's no concern at all. Okay. Don't go making sieges. Near me, no sieges. Don't go making sieges less than three days before Shabbos. And once you get started, you don't stop. Right until it's full. Whether the pasuk in um, in uh, in Dvarim, which makes reference to the halacha of Baltashmas of cutting down fruit trees while besieging a city, and uh, the pasuk's language is Adrita until it falls, which implies until it falls by all costs. You don't imagine if you drop if you're trying to besiege a city and you uh, you drop the siege every time Shabbos comes along. That's not a very effective tactic. So if once people have started, they they don't have to stop. I'm Rabbi Shimon So we saw Rabbi said that his family's custom was they would give white clothing to the uh, launderer no closer than three days before Shabbos because of the difficulty involved in really getting white clothing clean. It says the Gemara, Tanya, Amr, Tzadik, 
Very interesting. The the household of Ramgamliel, when it came to white clothes, they observed a big chumrah, and they kept it three days in advance. However, when it came to normal clothes, they would even give those clothes on Erev Shabbos. Very, very interesting. It says the Umar with the rain Madnu, what do we learn? One thing we do learn is Shalavainim Kashim Lakapsan Yaser Min Hatsivun. White clothing are much clothes harder to get clean than colorful ones. Okay, seems like a, a you know a useless piece of information, but says the Gemara Abaya Habiyodli Abaya was giving a uh, you know a T-shirt, some kind of colored item, to a launderer. I'm like, how much? How much? What's the price? How much do I owe you? I'm like, right? So the price he quoted to him is this was the same price that he had quoted to him, you know, I don't know, the week before for his white pants. Amalei kvar So Avaya says, "Ha! The rabbis got to got the, 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 you can't trick me. I know that it's harder to cl- to clean white clothing. I know that it's incorrect to charge me the same price for color clothing as for white because um, because uh, because I already learned this Mishnah and Bryce. Okay." Says Abaya, seems like Abaya kind of didn't really like, uh, wasn't such a huge fan of um, launderers. He said that whenever you give it to them, you should measure it on the way in and measure it on the way out. Why? Because inevitably, because when it stretches or when it shrinks, either you lose, right, you lose actual. Uh, um, Material like it doesn't fit you anymore, or even when it spreads, it becomes kind of right. You might say, "Oh, Baruch Hashem, my, now my robe is even longer, right? It got stretched out." If you were an ancient sort of person, I think. Um, but uh, ultimately, it's not good for the fabric. The fabric is getting distressed, and eventually, is going to fall apart faster. So don't. Tr- so you should measure it before you give it to them. Interesting. All right, for so the Gemara had ended off by saying the Mishnah had ended off by saying that both Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel agree that it's permissible it's permissible to place a heavy beam as they would in those times uh, or uh, a heavy millstone or mill I think they used wooden mills um, on top of olives in order to on top of grapes in order to slowly crush them even though that crushing is going to continue happening all through Shabbos, right? That for some reason everyone agrees. Says the Gemara, Maish not cool because of Beis Shammai. Maish not curious Beis Habadi Guli Hagat to like us. Well, what happened? Beis Shammai has all these rules. What is it about these curious of the Beis Habad and the Guli Hagat, these olive olive press components and grape press components, that all of a sudden Beis Shammai clams up? Says the Gemara, Hanach the Abdul Bishabes, Mchayev Chatos, Kadu Bahu Bishamai. Because Bishamai Arab Shabbos and Hashem. Bishamai's Gezerah was only on, Bishamai's Gezerah was only on things which, if I would go ahead and do them right now on Shabbos with the lights out, then, so I would, uh, I would then, um, I would then, 
um, sorry, I would then um, I, I would then be liable to bring a chattas, right? However, when it comes to something like this, this is not a specific. There's no specific. If I were to go and uh, and place the bag, place the uh, the stone on top of the olives or the wood on top of the olives to be crushed, I wouldn't be liable to bring a chattas for reasons that will I'm not going to get into right now. But I would not be chayiv. I would not be liable to bring a chattas. Says the Gemara. Right, who is the Tana who holds, right, that this is things that come on their own, things that happen on their own, Shaper um, are that's fine, that's okay. This thing right, what are all those things? So Shum is garlic. Boiser is underdeveloped grapes. The amelilis is bikotafta melilis, right? It's undeveloped wheat grain. All these things, when you crush them, they put out some kind of liquid which tastes pleasant. Right? Sherisikon, which you crush, can be boidyain. Rishmal Aimer, Yigmor mi shetechshah. Rishmal says, let it finish. It's totally fine. Let it finish after Lichbench and after Shabbos starts. Kiva Aimer, Kiva disagrees. Kiva says, turning the page, La Yigmar. You should not allow it to finish, right? You gotta take it out. You gotta take it out of the weight that's crushing it, the stone, the millstone, whatever. Um, and you can't allow it to continue getting squished on Shabbos. So again, it seems like Rabbi Kiva would disagree. He would say it's not true that Beishamah and Beishillah agree on this. He would, presumably, he would say that even Beishillah um, agrees that you cannot do this. Okay. Rabbi Elazar, this Rabbi Elazar is an Amoira, right? Right? He says it is the Tana Rabbi Elazar. Right? He is Rashi says it's Rabbi Elazar ben Pedas. The Amoira is saying that it's Rabbi Elazar ben Shemua, the Tana. Okay. It's not. What's this opinion? Well, what's this Rabbi Elazar? Chalais Dvash, honeycomb. Honeycombs, Shiriskon, which were. Um, crush the fellow squished the honeycombs to try to get the honey out of them by Arab Shabbos. The Yatsume Atzma, right? And uh, the honey at, over the course of Shabbos began oozing out. Says the Gemara, says, says, the, uh, says the Mishnah, Asr. It's Asr, it's forbidden. You're not allowed to consume that honey on that Shabbos, right? You have to wait, etc. Um, it is Balacha, it's no good. No good. So, so, Rebbe Lazar says it's fine. Rebbe Lazar says I don't see any problem here. It's fine. Okay, very well. So two different versions of what seem to be essentially the same halach. Seems to be essentially the same halach. Okay, right? We had this, Rebbe Lazar, who says it's Rebbe Lazar. And we had Rebbe Yezi who said it's Rebbe Shmuel. In reference to Shum and Baisim. In reference to those underdeveloped uh, fruits of vegetable. So, says the Gemara, my time, Rebbe Surchanina, my time, like Lazar. Why did Rebbe Surchanina say like Rebbe Lazar? Why did he have to, why did he go to Melilas and Boiser and Garlic? Why didn't he just say like Rebbe Lazar with the um, honeycomb? This is a little different, right? Over there, when somebody takes a honeycomb and squeezes it until the honey comes out under a weight, 
Honey is not considered a liquid. Honey is not one of the liquids, right? Honey is oichel. It's food. It's food. You squeeze some food and you got out some food. That's not schita. That's not squeezing, right? The whole concern we have here is the malacha of schita of squeezing. Well, that's not squeezing. It's not true squeezing. True squeezing starts with a food and and ends with a liquid. And that's not what happened here. That's not what happened here. However, in my example, you squeeze a food and you end up with a liquid. So I prefer my example. <laughs> Rebbe Lazar says, that's not really the point. Rebbe Lazar the Amira, he's explaining why he prefers to say that this is Rebbe Lazar the Tana. Right? He says, it's not the point. We know. We already know. Rebbe Lazar already says, We know that Rebbe Lazar holds that fruits and, uh, and, and, uh, and the like, food which eventually put forth a liquid, um, are similarly permitted. Are similarly permitted. They're permitted just like honeycomb, which is squeezing the food and getting out of food. Right? Um, how do we know? Rav Hoshia came from Narada with a bright sun, he said. Rav They had a clear a cut bright which said that olives and grapes, which were crushed, which were placed under a press on Arab Shabbos, and continued to put out their liquid. During Shabbos itself, according to Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Lazar, they are permissible. Okay, so he didn't have to. In other words, there was no need for uh, there was no need to say that chiddush because that chiddush is already known. That chiddush was already out there. Okay, so says the Gemara of Rabbi Yisroel Chanina. Okay, fair enough. So why didn't he go with Rabbi Lazar? Says the Gemara. He wasn't aware of the Brises, so he thought that maybe the distinction that he made, maybe that maybe Rebelaz's point was only said in reference to extracting food from food, but not in, in terms of extracting liquid from food, right? He thought that maybe there was a different explanation. Maybe Rebelaz wasn't saying the same thing as Rabbi Ishmael. So therefore, he chose to just say Rabbi Ishmael, who he knew was talking about a case of schita, a case of extracting liquid from food. Okay. All right, so says the Gemara, very nice. my time Why did Rebbelazer go through all that trouble? Why didn't he simply say like Rebbeis Berchanina? Rebbeis Berchanina isn't, isn't talking about one thing, but based on some other brisa, we know that he would agree even in the other case that Rishmal says, why don't you just start with Rishmal? Rishmal is nice and straightforward. He says, if you squish garlic, you squish beiser, uh, underdeveloped grapes on Arab Shabbos, and they keep oozing out on Shabbos, it's okay. That's definitely food and liquid, food turning into liquid. Says the Gemara. So the Gemara says I, I, that he wasn't comfortable using the the discussion of Rebbelazer because we know that Rebbelazer said um, that, that in reference, I should say, to the discussion of Rebbelazer. We have a quote from Rabbi Yechanan who says that the whole case is b'mechusar and dicha, with a, with a product that hasn't been crushed yet, or or mashed, you know, uh, kind of pounded down. The kuliyamu leplegi, right? The kipligi b'mechusar and excuse me, b'mechusar and shechika, right? Everyone agrees when it comes to something that hasn't had like the first stage. Dicha is like the first stage of squishing of pounding, right? What's the discussion? Something that hasn't yet been ground, it hasn't yet been totally crushed out. 
He doesn't know, he says, right? He says, I don't know really if it's comparable to the case we're trying to discuss. We're trying to discuss our Mishnah, which is talking about grapes and olives, right? So he says these are really, um, these really fall into the discussion of Mechusar and Dicha. Of Mechusar and Dicha, things which are, uh, which haven't even had their earliest, um, their earliest crushing. So who cares? What's all the relevance? So things that have the, they haven't, they haven't been crushed at all, when you put them under the, uh, the weight, right? So as soon as you put the weight on it, that's really, um, that's really the whole melacha, as it were, the whole iser, whatever that iser is exactly. So therefore, um, uh, therefore, what, what ultimately happens is that, you know, you're doing it right before Shabbos, and then, you know, a short while later, the liquid comes out, because it's like the first stage, right? So that is something which everyone agrees is usher, everyone agrees is prohibited, because the whole malacha really happens on Shabbos. It's not like a process that started before Shabbos and continued on to Shabbos. The entire malacha, the entire thing happens on Shabbos, and therefore, in that case, says Rabbi Yechanan, everyone actually agrees when it comes to the honey that things that have not been processed whatsoever, that have not been squeezed whatsoever, uh, it's forbidden to place them under a rock. So our Mishnah would actually be comparable. So he thinks, says Rabbi Yechanan, I would, I would actually assume that according to Rabbi Elazar, our Mishnah's case is in fact prohibited because similarly, if you take a rock and put it put it on top of totally unsqueezed grapes, um, it's not long before the liquid starts pouring out, and that's going to happen on Shabbos. So arguably, it would be totally prohibited according to Rabbi Lazar. To which Rabbi Zerachanina says, "Okay, so you know what? I'm going to turn to Rabbi Shmuel, who's much more explicit and doesn't necess- and would seemingly agree that in the case of our Mishnah, the um, the placing of the weight on the fruits is permitted. Okay. Um, Rabbi Yosper Chanina ruled like Rabbi Shema. Okay. Um, so now, Shemin Shel Badodin Machatzali Shel Badodin. Now, a new halacha, we're going we're gonna to come back to these hayroys, uh, to these uh, rulings. If, when you have the badadin are people who work at a bad, at an olive press. So the oil that belongs to badadin and the machtzali shal badadin and the mats which they use, this is almost like a, a totally side point, just once we're talking about olive presses. So these, oh, this oil, and I don't really know the process, but these, the oil and the mats that they used were specifically set aside for the purpose of olive pressing for their work. So, they are muktza. They are not intended for use on Shabbos. They're intended for a non-Shabbos use. Therefore, Rav Osa, Rav said, is forbidden to uh, to be metaltal to move these items. Right? Again, this is a muktza sogia. It just jumped in in the middle of our sogia. Right? Um, Rav Osa, Shmuel, sorry, Shmuel permitted the uh, oil and maktzalais, the oil and mats. Why? Because Shmuel has a much more limited Interpretation of mukta. Right? He, and again, when we talk about mukta, we will talk about um, what exactly that debate is later on in the south. Hani karchi What's karchi They are. What do you call it? They're, they're, it's kind of like a. I would. I would. It's probably a canvas. Uh, two two nets which are attached in the middle by something, and they almost go down like a little tent, like this. And you would place them, Rashi says, on the deck of a ship. And that was kind of the common way 
to cover things that needed to be protected from the elements on the, on, on board a, a ship. So Rav also Bishmul Shari. Um, uh, uh, Rav again forbade their uh, being metalto them, moving them, right? And again, they uh, they um, uh, again Rav and Shmuel split up along the same lines. Rav says it's permitted. Shmuel says it is forbidden. Okay. Um, says the Gemara. When I set aside animals for specific purposes, when I say this goat is my milk goat, and this Rachel, this ewe, is my wool-growing ewe, right? I say this chicken is for my eggs, or this ox is for my plow, right? So says the Gemara, and Vitami de Iska, and my business dates, right? Not the dates that I want to eat, but the dates that I plan on selling. So Rav Asar Ushmul Amar Mutter. Rav says it's forbidden, and again Shmuel says it's mutter, and these are all um, debates about Mukta become mythically but Plukdas for Yehudah of Shimon. It's the debate between Yehudah of Shimon as to how exactly uh, Mukta works, which again we will get to in its time. Um, Rav has a much more expansive definition of how Mukta works, which includes a lot more cases, including the ones we just mentioned, while Shmuel has a much more narrow definition. Okay. There was a student, right? This is what the this is what the comparison, and this is why it's relevant. All discussion about Mukta. There was a student, probably a learned student, but a student who ruled in these matters in a city called Charta de Argis, which was a Zoroastrian stronghold. Um, I don't know why it's relevant. Rashi mentions that it was built by uh, somebody who was a Megas, Zoroastrian priest. Um, so he ruled Ke Rabbi Shimon. He ruled like Rabbi Shimon, who um, who uh, who has this far less expansive definition of Mukta, this much more contracted, more makel interpretation of Mukta. Shamte of Hamnuna, so Hamnuna was very displeased with him, and he put him in Shamte. He censured him, right? He put him in the kind of uh, a type of chayr. So says the Gemara of Akrib Shimon Sfiralan. What do you mean? We passed on Akrib Shimon. We we use the narrow definition of Mukta. Again, we'll get to it when we get to it. But we use the narrow definition of Mukta. It's the Gemara Basrei the Rav Hava Loibay the Lemevet Hachi. So apparently, Charta the Argus fell under Rav's kind of jurisdiction, and it wasn't appropriate to make such a ruling in the city of Rav, in the in the uh, I should say in the in the region of Rav, who did not hold this way. Because as we know, Rav went with the more uh, expansive definition of Rav Yehuda. Okay? Right, so Laibay the Mabut Hachi shouldn't have done that. Hani Trey Talmidi, Chad Matzel Buchad Mano, Chad Matzel Bar Buchamish Mani, the Kamifli of Tluk to the Rav Barzav, the Rav Hunas. So again, it's like yet another slightly related story. There are two uh, approaches to how many pieces of clothing. Uh, excuse me, how many uh, uh, kalim vessels one can carry out of a house that's on fire on Shabbos. Um, so discussion in the Gemara later on. That's like Daf Kuf or something. Or is it? Yeah, Daf Kuf Daf Kuf So as a Machlech is over there, right, whether or not I can carry out a whole bunch of vessels tucked into one, or do I have to uh, specifically bring out Mazen Shalish Sudais, the food necessary for three meals, and that's it? Um, so the question was, which one to permit under which circumstances? One did like one opinion, 
one did like the other, and their debate was based on the Machlekes of Rezav the Ravuna. When we learn that Gemara, we will see that they have an argument about that subject. Okay? It's very interesting little series of Gemaras. Let's just read the Mishnah and we'll wrap up. It says in the Mishnah, Ain't Tilin Basar, Betzal Ubeza Elikadei, Shia Tilin Baidyan. We don't roast meat, onions, or eggs. Um, um, with uh, for we only roast them with enough time for them to get finished. You stick them on the spit. They have to be finished and cooked when it's still daytime before Shabbos starts. We don't put bread into the oven close to dark. I'm trying to find the proper translation for charor in yeshiva. We translate charor as cookie. It's not correct, I think. Um, I mean, whatever, it's not, it gets the point, but it's not necessarily historically accurate. But some kind of baked, you know, dough thing that they would make, you can't, but they made it directly on the coals, so. Um, a biscuit. A biscuit. You see, they're, they're, come on, they just mean cooking. <laughs> so, you know, article, article is a bunch of yeshiva guys with ties on. But, um, but yeah, so it, it is a biscuit of some sort. It absolutely is. Um, it's just cooked directly on the coals. Or baked directly in the coals. There has to be enough time for it to form. Rashi says what is called a crustin, a crust, must be formed before Shabbos, right? If you ever heard this strange word called crust, it has to be forming before Shabbos uh, starts. Um, the bottom, now we would think that that means merely the bottom part. Uh, Rashi says we're going to explain exactly what it means in the coming Gemara. Um, Shiyikrim, again, is that same idea of crusting. Um, you can set up the Pesach, the carbon Pesach, in the oven close to dark, right, because it's, uh, it's roasting on its bit. These are all things which are a mitzvah. So we allow a little more wiggle room in terms of setting things up close to Shabbos. So I can set up the Pesach to roast close to Shabbos, and I can cause the fire to catch onto the Madura in the Beis HaMoikid. In the Beis HaMoikid, there was always a Madura going because it was cold. The Kareem were walking around barefoot, so they had to make sure it was well heated, didn't get sick. So we can machiz and or we can uh, kind of encourage the fire to catch on uh, close to Shabbos. And uh, finally, um, Ubigvulin and Stam, when a person is making a bonfire out in the out in the lands, right? the fire has to get much farther. Can't just you can't just start the fire, right? You have to, the fire has to really take over the whole um, Madura, the whole uh, the whole pile of wood before Shabbos. Rabbi says, but when you're dealing with coals, it's different. Coals, you can just make a little fire, and that is good enough. Okay.